Welcome to Coffee and Change, a podcast where we talk about change in our lives, our work, and our world, and how we're managing it. When's the last time you had a conversation with someone where you realized the student has become the teacher? I had one of those conversations today with my next guest, Sophia Way. Sophia and I met a number of years ago on the campus of Johns Hopkins University, where she was a student in the public health school. We got to know each other through some of the work that I had done with the Alumni Engagement Office, and we became friends. Um, I guess I sort of became a little bit of a mentor to Sophia, and she became an informative sort of advisee to me on the student experience and ways in which alumni could help students. When we connected to talk about her coming on the podcast, I thought we would be talking about the state of the world, the pandemic, and its impact on public health. And as always, it was such a beautiful reminder when the student becomes the teacher. We ended our conversation on the topic of mental health and wellness and mindfulness. So I hope you enjoy the conversation with Sophia. I know I came away wiser, having learned so much more about the importance and the perspective of mindfulness, mental health, and wellness in public health. So my name is Sophia Way. Um, I was a student at Johns Hopkins, which is where you and I first connected. Um, During my time at Hopkins, I was a student athlete. I was a leader on the uh, women's basketball team and also very involved with public health and a lot of the faculty and staff on campus with the public health initiatives um, and also very involved with the Career Center, which I think has transformed a lot over time. So since graduating from Hopkins, I spent some time doing healthcare consulting with Western Row um, and learned a lot there and spent a lot of time engaging with you know, health payers and understanding the healthcare landscape from that lens and that perspective before um, taking on a new role and joining a value-based care company called Village MD, um, where I work currently. And I think that's been a very interesting role, especially during this quarantine and this pandemic, to look at how people are adapting and being affected in different ways um, by all this change and and by this virus. So I think there's... um, a lot of interesting things and perspectives that are that are coming into this, but um, for me, I think the value-based care part has been particularly interesting in understanding how this is going to change our healthcare landscape and how people are consumers of healthcare in in the United States. Absolutely, I mean it's so top of mind right now. I mean, I'd love to dig into the value-based care um, stuff for sure because I know in you know in, in our world of um, as you mentioned, you know, you previously being at West Monroe and doing the healthcare consulting, um, you know, the value-based care discussion, I think has been, has been going on for a number of years now, but I, but I feel 
in some ways, what we're what we're up against now is really um, a test of that, and we're starting to to sort of see what that looks like and feels like under under the the stress to the systems, the healthcare systems. Um, so we definitely would love to to dig into that a little bit. But I'd love to start actually where you kind of started, which which was talking about being um, at Johns Hopkins and being a student athlete. And then also very focused on public healthcare um, initiatives. You know, the the world is 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 reading and seeing a lot of things that are coming out of Johns Hopkins right now, and um, and the the institution um, is obviously known for its you know leading um, development and research and thought leadership on public health. Um, but as you think about like your experience there as a student and as a student athlete, and now as a, you know, a thought leader yourself, um, how, how do you think the, the situation that's happening right now um, and how you see it, how do you think your Hopkins experience in all forms and all shapes um, is, is helping you kind of see where we're at today um, in this, in this crisis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the first piece of that is is experiencing this attitude um, just for the timing of it all that I was able to complete my four years um, just before all this happened and, and have a year of normalcy in the workforce before um, you know many of my peers lost that opportunity to, to complete that and for those that are still in school you know having that sense of anxiety and, and wonder of what's what's going to happen next year and what's going to happen the following year. And um, so I think first and foremost, there's definitely just a tremendous sense of, of um, gratitude for the experience that I got. Um, and you kind of learn that not to take those things for granted. Um, but in terms of my experience there and, and how it's helping me look at what's going on now, I think, you know, the biggest pieces of that come down to the fundamentals and principles you learn being a public health student in understanding, um, you know, how do you look at disease prevalence and how do you look at um, epidemiology in a way that's going to help you digest and understand what the news and media are saying in a way that makes you a bit more informed um, as a citizen. And I think that really is also something that, you know, I'm grateful for in my education because I think there's a lot of misinformation coming out from the media <clears throat> and in how people are interpreting what's being said. And it's really hard, I think, for some people to understand truly what what is going on, what is the real gravity of the situation, um, and, and how are we handling it? I think some of those concepts are really difficult for people without a background in public health to understand, unless they're going to be a very active consumer and really take the time um, to investigate themselves, which I don't know is an onus that everybody, you know, feels the need to take or even um, understands the importance of taking. And so I think that's certainly something that's been very helpful for me. And I think almost bringing a sense of um, calmness to how I'm, I'm perceiving this because I feel a bit more informed and I feel aware of what's going on. And I think that's something that not everybody might be able to deduce from you know, media headlines and uh, what's being put out online. Yeah, I think it's a really powerful point that you make around the ability to to calmly 
kind of curate things and to stay informed. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned being a, um, a student athlete and I'd like to dig in a little bit there because in my experience, I mean, I wasn't a student athlete, but obviously we've worked with a lot of them. I hire a lot of them. I, I advise a lot of them. And one thing that I've always noticed, and I, w- I would love your thoughts on this, there's a there's an element of composure and an element of leadership that comes with the combination of being a student and an athlete. And I'm curious in your experience being on the basketball team and you know balancing both athletics and ac- academics, was there a leadership element there that that was given to you that you drew upon? And even more so, do you find yourself pulling on some of those tenants today? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, being a student athlete goes far beyond just your four years collegiately. I think it's a skill set that you develop over the course of your entire lifetime and your entire adolescence. And I think, you know, some of those leadership lessons I learned go back pretty far and are are deeply rooted. Um, And I think some of the biggest ones that apply for me in this scenario are um, making sure that you can connect with your teammates and, and, you know, in the real world, that might be family, that might be friends, um, colleagues, even, even people you report to, you know, upward management, I think is something you also learn being a student athlete and being a leader on a team, you know, you still have a coaching staff and support staff that you're working in tandem with. And so I think one of the biggest things that I'm drawing on right now is the ability to connect um, and almost check in and make sure that, you know, people are in the people that are in my circles are moving forward in, in positive and and, um, resilient ways. And I think, you know, that is a perfect kind of transition into one of the other things that you just touched on. But um, I think many student athletes develop this sense of resiliency and another way of saying that as you did is composure. Um, And I think that just comes from so many repetitions of being in experiences and situations, you know, whether that be competitively um, or in practice, but over the course of your athletic career, being in scenarios where you really have to focus in and block out the external noise, if that makes sense, and, and really root down and focus on the immediate next steps. And I think that really translates into the sense of focus and calmness in the real world where you might be feeling, you know, in a sensory visceral way, the same things you're feeling in the fourth quarter of a tied game with a minute on the clock. There's a lot of external pressures and um, distraction that can pull you away from what's most important. But over time, when you're in those scenarios, you learn to, to really dial in and, um, and be mindful, which is something I know that you practice a lot, mindfulness and, and meditation. Um, I think all that psychology goes hand in hand to being a student athlete. And later on, just being um, you know, a citizen of the world and of the community is understanding that focus and understanding how to not let you know, fear of the future or what's something that might be three plays away take away from how you're going to perform in that moment. Um, and I think that's something, again, that student-athletes really just develop with experience and repetition. And I think that's something that really is a benefit and a gift to people in that position to, to work that muscle and flex that muscle to understand um, that it can be applied outside of, of athletics as well. 
Yeah, I mean, the example is so is so perfect to me because even as you described, and I can sort of feel it in my body as you described, you know, the last minute of a game and you've got all these distractions and the noise and the, you know, all the elements that can take away your focus. Um, and really you have to, in a calm way, rely on your own strengths that you, that you have, that you've worked on those muscles to really stay in the moment, stay focused and, you know, make the shot, so to speak. You know, you right. touched on it a little bit before. Um, I think, and think in some ways, what's what people are feeling right now is a very sensory experience. And you would you had alluded to that. It's a sensory experience, whether it's on a um, a court or in in what I'm ex- what I'm experiencing now on on your own living room couch, trying to take in the information, the noise, the distraction, the hyperbole. Um, when you, th- when you think about that, all of this information that's coming at us um, as citizens of the world, as consumers, what recommendations maybe do you have for people that are trying to, to get to that more clarity? Um, because it is, it is very noisy. There's a lot out there. Um, and, you know, you're in, this, you're in this healthcare space and you've, you've seen the complexity um, on both sides um, as a student of it and now as a practitioner of it. Um, what, what would be some advice you maybe give to people in terms of how to lessen the noise and maybe strengthen the signal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, a lot of that is something I'm still, you know, constantly working on and trying to, to maintain. And I think it's a practice. And what's most effective for me personally is, is different grounding techniques. And not to get, you know, too much into psychology on this, but I think it's really, really helpful to um, just kind of reiterate the facts and focus on the present. And I think a lot of the um, agitation or, or fear comes from thinking about the future. And I think that's when anxiety starts to seep in. And that's when, um, you know, in the analogy of basketball, that's when you start to lose your focus on what you're doing in that moment. And you lose, you know, you lose that grip for a minute and it's going to, for a second, and it's going to translate into, you know, a negative outcome in that play. And, you know, on the couch, you know, just as a, as a person dealing with this pandemic, those moments where we stop focusing on what we know in this moment and what we're focusing on in this moment, I think that's when we will start to allow some of that anxiety to seep in and feel like we lose control. And I think that's another piece of it, like this locus of control. Um, is something that's really difficult with a pandemic because so much of this truly is outside of our power um, in terms of what's happened and how it's progressing. You know, as a day-to-day citizen, um, a lot of a lot of what's happening is happening to us. But in that same breath, I think there is such importance in understanding that there is an internal locus of control in how we react to it and how we manage it. Um, and I think another piece of, you know, an important part of this analogy that we didn't quite touch on just yet or, um, in enough detail is at least in my sport and basketball, you are not out there alone. You are with teammates and you're constantly communicating with them. And, you know, whether that be bouncing ideas off for plays or communicating on movement and, you know, what that next action is going to be. I think that also, you know, relays really perfectly into this analogy that, it's important not to isolate 
I think, ourselves and our thoughts and what's going on. And I think conversations, especially like this one, are so helpful in in level setting and um, kind of clarifying what's going on and how we're perceiving things. And by articulating that with, you know, friends and family, we can start to root out what maybe is being magnified in our mind or hyperbolized, as you said earlier, and separate that from what we do know to be the, you know, facts or simple truths in a day-to-day situation. And so, you know, I think, again, talking about the media, sometimes it's difficult to do that um, when you're ingesting all of these, you know, fantasized media headlines that, you know, sometimes are evoking fear on purpose as clickbait or, or maybe just uh, misinformed. And so I think really being a student of information is important in that and maintaining that composure and then sharing that information and talking about how you're perceiving it with those around you and having these dialogues can be really helpful in staying grounded. Yeah, there's, there's so much that you said there that really just kind of gives me hope that, you know, as people listen to this and the conversations that you're having and, and by extension, I'm having, you know, with family members and with friends, there's, there's a piece that you said here that, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about, which I think also goes to some of the value-based care. And that to me is the connection that I know has been in my experience between mind and body. And as we think about like value-based care, um, so much of, of my discussion with people the past, you know, a couple of years and definitely probably more recently has, has really focused on the ability to take care of your body, um, as an ecosystem, by also taking care of your mind um, and really understanding the connection, you know, between not only the things like you eat, sort of the the mind gut connection, but also the mind corpus connection, you know, your entire body. Um, and so, so I'm curious in in your in your studies as well as your practice, are you seeing that change occur more? Is that something I'm just noticing because, as you mentioned, you and I are both kind of students of the mindfulness approach and understanding the power of, you know, being in the present now psychology, or is that something you're seeing um, greater in, in the, in the healthcare industry? I think you bring up a really good point. Um, I mean, so for me personally, and I think some of the conversations I've been having with people close to me, I think that mind body connection is one of the things that are a little bit more difficult to maintain and nurture in this environment. Um, I think it requires a much more active effort and um, focus to go out of our way to maintain it. Because I think, you know, obviously a big piece of quarantine is, is being sedentary and the research um, supports itself that, you know, there are just tremendous correlations between um being sedentary and not, not having movement and exercise in your day-to-day life and, you know, negative outcomes with mental health and, and mental well-being, um, as well as physical, obviously it's going to affect your physical health, but with quarantine and, you know, going outside, especially with people that are living in cities or crowded places, it's not always an easy thing to go out and have movement. So you're seeing a lot of, a lot of people take up you know, home workouts and, and trying to engage in maybe home yoga or, or different movement practices um, that are obtainable within the confines of an apartment or a home. And 
I think it's certainly doable and, and maintaining that is, is tremendously helpful. But I, I also think it's important to acknowledge that it's tremendously difficult. And I think this is actually kind of where social media um, comes into play as well, because it feels like there's this pressure to, to be doing a lot in quarantine, that if you're not coming out of quarantine with a new hobby or a new mastered yeah. skill or, you know, something like that, that maybe you're not doing it right. And I think that creates this psychological pressure on us that is a bit undue. And um, I think my advice to that is, is to practice patience with yourself and, and um, you know, practice the importance of understanding what's important to you and, and maintaining that. I don't, I don't know if that directly answers your question. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. My experience. It does. It does. And I think it actually, you bring it to an area, which I think is an important one. And it's certainly something I, I've been struggling with, which is this aspect of it. There, there is this pronounced undue pressure and maybe it's because we're paying attention more to different things, or maybe because in some ways I, my, you know, my belief is that it's, we've never really slowed down to this degree before. And so in slowing down to this, to this degree, we are also trying to fill our days and our time and our space with something, um, Mm -hmm. as you described, like, how can I be valuable in this? And one of the things that I know I've, I've noticed is what it feels like I'm holding is inadequacy. And, you know, (laughs) As 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 a lifelong learner and as a graduate of Johns Hopkins University, like this, that feeling is really tough for me. Like to to feel inadequate to to say there's nothing I can do, and so there is this tension that I've noticed where I need to then grasp onto something. Or and you you know you you mentioned it with with social media. We're we're seeing now more and more in our LinkedIn feeds and our Facebook feeds. You know. Um, these ads, you can take this course, which is normally $5,000 or $20. And, you know, there's just all of these mm-hmm. little baits and hooks to try and get us to, to jump into something. And, and I'm curious, like your thoughts, I've, I've noticed my, my physical body responding in a way it's like, resist that, resist the urge to jump into one of these things and try and become you know, um, an expert chef or a bread maker or, um, you know, an, a, earn an accelerated master's degree or whatever it is that's, that's on these banners to tell you, like, you, if you do this, you're going to be okay, or you're going to come out on the other side, um, having, having grown. And in some way, my belief is that the growing that I'm actually doing is, is in the stillness. It's in the silence. It's sitting in the ambiguity. It's, holding this level of inadequacy and, and really trying to understand who am I in that? Um, and how does that inform the way that I show up in the world and move through the world? Um, so that's probably more, more than, than you needed to know, but I'm just curious if any of that resonates. Because it certainly, it, it certainly resonates with me. And, um, you know, I'm curious to, to know a little bit more about, you know, how you're making that decision to say no to those banners and, and you're having this reaction to block it out. Um, and what's driving that? Because, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly, I think doing a little bit of the same thing. Um, I actually 
am trying to disconnect in, in a very large way from social media. And for me, that meant I deleted Instagram for, for about a month of quarantine. And I wanted to see, you know, how, how was it affecting me and how would my life be different in quarantine without that, that constant, um, you know, scrolling and, and like serotonin bursts of, of always being on social media because, you know, what I found in the beginning of quarantine, I don't know if you ever set um, limit time limits on your apps, but it's something that I'd set, you know, a long time ago for my social media. And typically I would hit that time limit sometime in like late afternoon, early evening. And that's when I was like, okay, no more social media for today. With quarantine, I found that I was hitting that, you know, by mid morning, I was getting that alert wow. that you've hit the, you know, that same amount. Right. And to me, that was a, a pretty big red flag because that meant I was no longer sitting in that silence, like you talked about. And I was, I was forgetting to engage in my mindfulness practices and, and really connecting internally with myself and my own thoughts, because I think something that happens, at least for me with social media is I get so swept up in what I think I should be doing and what other people are promoting is what should be done. And, and I start to follow these mindsets and these thought patterns that aren't my own. And that's when I start to really feel disconnected with myself. So I, you know, that's an example of me taking, I think, a similar action as you are with, you know, ignoring these how to make your sourdough bread as a, you know, professional chef type of banners and, and taking these master's courses. Um, so for me, almost disengaging has been really important. And that doesn't mean I'm not talking with my friends or, or keeping up with them. It just means that I'm doing so in a very mindful and intentional way. That instead of just seeing their posts or what they you know put on their story that day, I'm calling yeah. them up or, you know, engaging in a you know, conversation. Yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, it's interesting. Like you would, you would ask like, how, how is that you, you were curious about how, how it is that I'm kind of saying that no, or, or not clicking that banner or not following that link. And, you know, it's, it's not easy, but I think it's so informative to me, you know, that as you described the way in which we scroll and read the way in which we our eyes drawn to um, a certain graphic. And there's no question, there's a lot of um, data science that, that's going into these things, right? There's a lot of marketing that's going into these things. Um, mm -hmm. And the people and the algorithms that are putting them together are not foolish. Like they have a lot of science that backs <laughs> up the, 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 the hypothesis that they're making that they're going to get so many click-throughs and turns and signups it's a dance every single day. It's a dance for me where, you know, in order for me to be in the world, I have to, you know, I sort of have to be in those lanes, right? We've got to do the business that we do. We've got to um, communicate on the channels in which we communicate. And so that by itself means we're going to see some of these things, but I guess what, for me, what I've noticed is it's not so much the, you know, why am I resisting this particular ad or advertisement or banner? But I turn, I turn it very inward and I say, what is coming up in me when I see that and I get the urge to go and explore or be curious about it or sign up for it? Um, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you a great example. Um, there's a lot of these conferences um, that are tech conferences that as we've been reading about, 
you know, they are large conferences that are normally organized, you know, years in advance and they get take, they take over convention centers and so forth. And they cost thousands of dollars. And now these companies like Facebook and Microsoft and IBM and others and Google and others, they've, they've basically made those conferences free and they're virtual. And, um, and honestly, I don't even know, like, I can't even remember. This is kind of scary. Like (laughs) about a week ago, I got a package that came from one of these tech companies to my house. And I'm like, this is interesting. What is this? And I open it up and it's, it's basically all of the, the swag that goes with one of these conferences. And it says, you know, welcome, here's your pass. Here's this, here's that, you know, cause obviously they'd ordered all that stuff beforehand and it showed up and, and I'm standing there and I said to my husband, I'm like, I don't even know how I got this. Like, did somebody sign me up for this? Did I sign up for this? Was there a, was there a late night that I was scrolling and I clicked on something <laughs> like it could be any of these things. And I, and I opened it up and I thought, okay, well, well, what am I going to do with this? And then it was really interesting, Sophia, cause I, I felt that sense of I'm a part of something. Like I felt that sense of inclusion for a minute. And I was like, all right, I'm, 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 I'm in the in crowd or I'm in this, you know, and, and I open it up and I didn't really do much with it. And then the next thing I know, like a couple of days later, an email comes and it says, sign up for your schedule, like start building your schedule online. And I just got that same sense of, well, of course I need to put something on the schedule. Like I, I mean, somebody went to the length of inviting me um, or making this free and there's a lot of resources. So, and before I knew it, I was, you know, I was clicking away on this schedule because it was so easy to add things to your calendar. And then I looked up and I was like, wait a minute, I just added three things that take place at 3.30 in the morning. What am I doing? Like, this is, this is a global conference. Clearly, like, I'm only looking at the titles and I'm trying to, to say to myself, will I ever get the opportunity to learn this again? And I'm just clicking away. And so I had to step back and be like, hang on, like, clearly you're not going to get up at 3.30 in the morning and listen to a, a, a webinar, which probably is going to be recorded and you can listen to later. So stop and ask yourself, what is it? And it's like you said, it's the, it's the hits of serotonin. It's like this hit of chemical reaction of, I want to be a part of something. I want to be a part of something that's contributing. I want to be a part of something that's contributing and of value because we're in such state of uncertainty. And it's such an interesting like mental experiment to go through. So it's almost, for me, it's almost like I had to have that experience happen. I had to have the package show up in the mail. I had to have something to hold in my hands. I had to then go and do this calendar building app, you know, app online and step back and be like, what, what am I doing? Like, what is it I'm trying to solve for here? And, and it taught me so much. And, and I think to your point, there's a, there's a silence, there's a stillness, there's an emptiness that comes with what we're in right now in this pandemic. And, you know, I was sharing yesterday with someone this belief that you're, you're either running towards something or running away from something at all times in life. And, and in some ways, I, I got confused. I think I'm running towards something, i.e. <laughs> this amazing conference online, when in fact what I'm running away from is loneliness and silence and mm-hmm. uncertainty. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I think I understand how you're perceiving that. I, I think it's also important to, to acknowledge that as you pointed out earlier, there are experts in this field that are, that are doing everything they can to leverage your attention and to, you know, to send you that package and really engage you as much as possible. Um, like that's, that's a clear sign that they're pulling out all their bells and whistles to, to try to pull you in and do, and, you know, get you in an autopilot mode where you're following their cues. And, um, and I think, as you point out, it's, it's easier than normal for us to fall into that because we're avoiding that loneliness. We're avoiding that stillness. Um, and I think, you know, how people are going to go about finding their center and finding their calm and their own voice again is certainly going to vary. Uh, for me, it had to be a, a complete disconnection. Um, I haven't gotten any mail packages yet, um, <laughs> but you know, a lot of that I think is still applicable to what what we're experiencing online, and how everyone's going to approach that is is going to be different and specific to them. Um, but again, I, I would stress, you know, self patience um, and understanding that we're not perfect. And you know, again, there are people that are really trying to pull us into these thought patterns and into these experiences. And I've certainly done it too with with retail. I'm getting all these emails from, you know, different you know, brands I like or stores and with, you know, crazy deals and I'm clicking through and filling up baskets. And then I get, you know, to check out and I'm like, I don't need any of this. Why did I just spend all this time, you know, looking up these new devices or whatever it is? Like I just got totally sucked in for an hour and a half into something that I don't need or want and I delete it and move on. But I'm certainly finding myself in those traps as well. Again, you know, marketing is such a psychological, uh, skill and, and industry. And, um, I find myself too, in this constant battle, trying to fend it off and, and refocus on my center and, and think about, you know, what do I actually want to do with my time right now? Or, you know, is there something I'm actively avoiding and can I sit with that thought and work through it? Um, and to yeah. me, that's, that's the work. And that's, that's also the, the, you know, the prize or the, the product of, of that work. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that, that kind of leads me to this question around I've had a lot of discussions with folks about the different waves of change that we're going to, that we are experiencing and that we're going to be experiencing. And so, you know, we're experiencing this huge wave of um, unemployment or we're experiencing this huge wave of um, economic um, impact and crisis. And I do believe there's, going to be a huge mental health uh, wave um, and impact. And so I would love your thoughts as someone who's, you know, in, in the healthcare space. Um, do you see the opportunity for change in the mental health, mental well-being, um, mental awareness space um, in the future, um, more so, more different than we've seen in the past? Absolutely. I, I do. And that brings me to one of the other principles that I keep falling back on as I think about, you know, what you pointed out with the recession and, and unprecedented unemployment. And, um, and that principle is, is twofold. One, this is certainly a very traumatic 
experience for so many people right now and very difficult experience. Um, and there are a lot of <clears throat> ways of life as we, as we knew it that, that will never return to normal. Um, and on the flip side of that, I think this is also an opportunity for tremendous growth and action. And that is very similar to, you know, wartime in, in the country or, you know, tremendous events that, that force us to catalyze um, or, or are a, catalyze, a catalyst to change and, and progress. And so within the healthcare space, I, I do see that. I see um, a tremendous opportunity for innovation and entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, that, I think that's one bucket of change. And I think there's also an opportunity and, and impetus for change in health policy. And so as it pertains to, to mental health, I kind of fall more into the, the first bucket of entrepreneurship and, and innovation. And I think we're starting to see that, you know, with telehealth. Telehealth finally caught up. It's not a new concept. Telehealth is not something that, you know, we just started toying with in the past five years. And it's just the tellminess that it took off. You know, this is something that's been around for over a decade and just never caught on. Um, because, you know, I think all industries are resilient to change, but healthcare especially is, um, you know, laden down with regulations and bureaucracy and, and is very slow to adapt techno technological changes. But with telehealth, we're seeing, um, I think, a tremendous uptake as well in companies that are offering um, counseling services via telehealth. And um, that's also something that I think is important to note is being enabled by flexible changes in policy. So, for example, um, the HIPAA governing body and um, HHS or the Health and Human Services body as well have agreed to um, to relax their their requirements for um, privacy as it pertains to using different um, platforms like FaceTime or Skype or Zoom to interact. Um, and what they've basically done said that they're not going to be imposing penalties for noncompliance in good um, in connection with good faith provisions for telehealth. And basically, what all that means is um, doctors don't have to fear that. HIPAA will levy a penalty on them for using Skype or FaceTime or, or Doxy.me and, and other types of technological platforms to connect with patients. Um, and what's particularly interesting about, I think, this policy relaxation is it pertains only to physician to patient care, um, which really says this is about expanding accessibility and access to care. It, it does not apply for physician-to-physician -physician contact and communication, um, the relaxation of these rules. So, and it, it's not just for um, physician-to-patient care in regards to COVID. It's, it's for any, any type of care. And I think that is really going to be important, as you said, um, for this wave of mental health challenges that I think this, our country and, and globally are going to begin to face. Uh, and seeing, you know, platforms like BetterHelp really catch on, which is a, um, a mobile app for counseling, mental health services more accessible in a time where, you know, people are afraid to leave their houses. And that's kind of like a, a circle where they're afraid to leave their house and they can't receive in-person mental health treatment, which is exacerbated by that cycle. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, to tie it back to the original question, you know, are there opportunities here for mental health and healthcare? 
Um, absolutely. And I think, you know, hopefully we haven't even seen the beginning of it because they've been around and, and been waiting for this catalyst to, to take them off um, or help them take off. It may be in more confidential ways, you know, from their own home and not having to maybe tell people in their circles they're, they're leaving for an appointment for mental health that right. they can receive that care and that treatment, you know, without the stigma um, or without having to fear the stigma. And the more people you see engaging in that um, to help hopefully reduce that social pressure and, and misconstrued thoughts around what it means to take care of your mental health just as much as your physical body. Yeah, I mean that that in itself, as you described so perfectly and so beautifully, the the ability for that stigma to come down um, out of out of something like this to me, it just gives me tremendous hope. Um, and as you described, the telehealth, the you know the 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 very mindful discussions around relaxing certain HIPAA portions to to put the patient at the center. I mean, that's value-based care, right? It's the, the ability to put the patient at the center of every, you know, um, interaction and to make it easier for them um, to stay healthy and to stay engaged. And to me, that gives me tremendous hope. And that's the part I'm really probably most excited about that comes out of this, this change going forward is um, what what is going to come that we're not even that doesn't even exist yet, right? Like new ways, new ways to connect, new ways to help, new ways to feel um, not alone um, is going to be really, really important. And that that part excites me um, a great deal. And I think about even folks like yourself, as you think about the next generation of public health students, right? And engaging that group of people, um, imagine the challenges and ideas they're going to have entering into a public health curricula in a post-COVID world. I mean, that to me is, it brings me a tremendous amount of hope. Yeah, me too. I think thinking about mental health and how this is going to affect the public from that lens, I think we're going to see, you know, I think very important to know, I'm not a clinician or or have a clinical background uh, or training, but I do think we're going to see a rise in things like depression and anxiety um, from loneliness. You know, there's plenty of literature to support the fact that loneliness is one of the biggest predictors of, of early mortality. And, you know, that is a, a tremendous public health threat and something that I would hope that our thought leaders and, you know, whether that be public health um, faculty at Hopkins or, or anywhere else, you know, other institutions throughout the country are going to acknowledge that and understand that, um, you know, that's going to have to become a bigger part of the curriculum than it already is. You know, in addition to those, I think, you know, OCD and OCD-like tendencies will obviously um, also, um, you know, th- there'll be a higher uh, prevalence of that throughout the population as well because of this fear of, of human contact and, and touching and, and sanitization and um, these routines of cleanliness that some people are really hammering home, it can be difficult to step out of that. That goes back to understanding how to really focus on the present and understand the facts of the scenario once things do die down and it's safe to you know relax those, those routines. It doesn't mean everyone's going to A, uh, acknowledge when that time or understand that time has come or B, be able to step out of it and, and, you know, return to a sense of normalcy. 
Um, I know I've heard some people talk about, you know, handshakes as we knew it will no longer really be a form of greeting. And I don't know that that's really the case or down the road, we're not going to return to that. I think some of these things are so deeply inclined, uh, deeply um, centered in our society and our, in our norms that there will be a return, but really to note that the mental health aspects and, and the need to help the public in that regard is, is going to be there. And it's going to be tremendously um, important from a human rights perspective, I think, or not, maybe not human rights, but um, really just public health. Yeah. I appreciate that very much. It's, um, it's a very, very poignant and very powerful point. Um, I appreciate you joining Sophia uh, for this discussion. I'm, I'm really glad we had it. I, I feel like we've touched on a number of things that um, I think a lot of people will relate to. Um, so I thank you. Thank you for your time and hope you stay well and safe um, in, uh, in Boulder there. Um, and yeah, just appreciate your perspective. Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate you having me and, and having this conversation. And, you know, I hope you and, and your partner stay safe as well and continue to find opportunities for growth and, and adaptation as this continues to progress. Thanks. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Take care.